Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 202. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Pete Davis. Glad to be here today. Well, I'm especially glad to have you here today because you think about politics a lot. And in my opinion, though the audience might not know you, you're very articulate and well-informed. And the topic you wanted to talk about today is deepening our democracy. So before we get into it, what does that phrase mean to you? So we all love democracy. You know, everyone talks about it. Every president talks about it. Everyone on both sides of the aisle talks about it. But we all have different ideas of what it means. And many of us think it is limited to democracy means we vote for our government. So democracy is all about the ballot box. Some have a what I would call a slightly deeper view of democracy, which is democracy means we can vote for our government, but we can also have free speech and free press and free religion and free assembly and freedom of protest to inform each other about how we should vote. But I actually think democracy is much deeper than that. Democracy is a way of life. It's a relationship to our structure that goes beyond just voting, that includes voting, but actually can talk about anything in our life. You can have democratic parenting. You can have a democratic friendship. You can have a democratic college. You can make your institution that you're involved with, whether it's a hospital or an architecture firm or a law practice, more democratic. So that's the project of deepening democracy. So let me give you an example of what a definition of deepening democracy could be. Democracy is the system in which we co-create our shared world. It's where our relationship to the forces that govern our lives, that tell us what we should do, we have a say in, we have a voice in. To have a democratic faith is to believe that everyone has that capacity to co-create their shared world. And you can do a few things to deepen democracy if you believe that this is what democracy means. One, you can strengthen people. You can equip and empower them. Two is you can open up our structures to more people in more ways. You can open them up and invite people in to give their voice about how those structures should be heard. And the third is you can bring people together because, you know, the best way to have your ideas become realized is to be together, not to be divided. A phrase that a group of people that I work with called the democratic alternative have to describe the process of deepening democracy is we say we believe in strong people, an open country and one nation. You said a lot of things there I find really fascinating, the first of which, you're opening, the idea that we all love democracy. And I would respectfully push back and say that I think there are some people, they may not feel comfortable saying so in public, who secretly would prefer more concentrated power, specifically aligned with their beliefs and ideals. And while I hope my somewhat cynical self is incorrect there, when I look out at the world and see other political structures— Power, at least unchecked, seems to concentrate or consolidate in one or few people. And in my perception of human nature, it seems like a lot of us, at least the majority of the time, would prefer to be right rather than fair, prefer to be in control rather than to allow more freedom. And I do think there's nuance there. That's my perception of human nature. But I'm really intrigued by the statement that we all love democracy because while I personally think it's quite effective and fair, if it's operating correctly, I think there are people who might disagree. The next thing you said that really resonates with me is that democracy is a way of life. 
And I think that's sadly true of other political systems. If you live in a dictatorship, I imagine your self-confidence might take a hit, your optimism for the future, and various other things that may not be quote-unquote political in a traditional sense could be affected by the political circumstances in which you find yourself. And what I personally cherish about a democratic way of life that you so eloquently phrased is that it compels us to see people as people. And I feel to a degree to not overvalue ourselves and the roles we have in the world and not undervalue where other people stand. We are all required, or at least socially expected, to pull our weight in our communities and help people. And I don't know that that communal sense is alive and well, at least when I look out at our country, America, in 2018. So let's start with the first thing you said there, that some people might not prefer democracy and they'd want a different system. You see some people on the right talk about how, look at Singapore, they have a very authoritarian city, it's very clean, it really runs efficiently, and you can have the liberty to do what you want with your property and have your dictator CEO be in charge. There was the royal wedding recently, you know, I think that's people loving a monarch. And then some people on the left are concerned that when the other side's in power, as is the case now for people on the left, the other side is in power, they start wondering, oh gosh, can I trust this country to vote in people that are advancing justice? And so there is this threat of people not believing in democracy anymore. But I think that the way to think about this is that democracy can either be in a death spiral or like a virtuous spiral. If you have less democracy, if you empower people less, if you close institutions down to people, they become less empowered. They become less engaged. They have less of a say and thus they feel less of a need to know what's going on. And they become less informed and then they stop believing in democracy and they start mistrusting each other. Whereas if you open up power to more people in more ways and you empower people by strengthening them, equipping them, educating them with knowledge, telling them that they have things they're going to be in charge of, then they're going to make better decisions. They're going to believe in democracy more. So either get this vicious or virtuous cycle. And I think we're in a bad place right now where because we've had shallow democracy for so long and we haven't caught this vicious cycle, people are just believing less and less. You know, Trump had a recent quote where he said, don't worry, I will do everything for you. Talk about an undemocratic quote. I'm going to be in your interest. So it's shallow democracy. Like I will be the voice of you, the forgotten man, but I will do it for you. Even if in the short run you can find someone that's going to do what you want for you, whatever you think of if Donald Trump's doing what you want for you, in the long run, if you haven't trained people to be engaged in the process of co-creating the world together, not relying on one person to do it for them, it's going to have pains down the road. In some ways, and this is going to be a shocking thing I'm going to say, Dems and the Republicans for the last two presidents have made the same fatal mistake. Obama ran on this idea that we're going to bring more people into the system, that change will not come from those who wait for some other person or some other time. He literally said, we are the change we have been waiting for. You are the change that we seek. It's not me, Obama. It's you. But then when he was elected, everyone who voted for him, myself included, sat back and said, he's going to do it for us. And we waited around and did not stay vigilant supporting our part of democracy. And the muscles atrophy. Trump has done the same for his constituency. He said, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to drain the swamp. I'll solve it for you. Trump's going to make America great again. It's not us together. 
And they're going to atrophy too. You know, I don't agree. I'm a man of the left, so I don't agree with most of what Trump has done. I'm disturbed by most of it. But some of these projects that are universal projects that I think many of Trump supporters care about, you know, reviving their communities, bringing jobs back to this country, having a dynamic economy, making our communities have solidarity together so we feel like we're part of a nation. That's not going to be done by one man, no matter if you do think he's amazing. It's going to be done by all of us together. And we can't let these democratic muscles atrophy. And I think these leaders are doing a disservice when they allow us to think that they've got it covered. And let me talk about the second thing you said, which is this connection between democracy and community, how you relate to each other as neighbors in a democratic country. Like there's a way to democratically engage each other. This gets a little like deep down in like the democratic religion, which is, you know, I think at the heart of democracy is what I call the democratic faith. And I'm taking this quote from the philosopher Roberto Mangabeira Unger, who I think is the greatest articulator of democracy in the 21st century. He says the democratic faith is belief in the constructive genius of ordinary citizens. It's the belief that inside of everyone is the capacity to share something that can help co-create the world, that people have opinions and ideas and dreams that are worth making real in the world. And those ideas and dreams and opinions might need to be cultivated. They might need to be equipped. They might be tongue-tied for a while. For example, like a child's dream might need to, he calls children tongue-tied prophets. The job of a teacher is not to indoctrinate them with what they should believe. It's to help them untie their tongues so that they can vocalize what they say. All of us in some ways are tongue-tied prophets if you have the democratic faith. And to approach someone as a fellow citizen in your country, not citizen in the legal sense of the term, but in the just we're all members of the community here, and to believe that they have something to share is a powerful way to approach each other with respect and love. It gets dangerous when you start saying there is a certain class of people that have something to share and everyone else is supposed to be managed by them. That's not a democratic relationship. I see your Unger quotation and raise you the following, which perpetually sits in my mind, that a person can be smart, but people collectively are stupid. And while I find that rather reductive and wish I remembered the source of that quotation, I will admit, as is probably visible on this show, that I do look at a lot of our collective unconscious, things we do mindlessly or because they have traditionally been done, and I wish that more individuals or groups questioned some of our group behavior. So it really excites me to hear someone like you articulate, through Unger and your own experiences, what you find compelling and exciting about how groups can work together. And I'll absolutely admit, as someone who loved his college community and draws great satisfaction from improv, that some of my happiest moments in life have most certainly come out of teamwork and cooperation. And when I look out at our country, I worry that there are mixed signals that make that somewhat difficult. In some regards, our society in the West is very individualistic. You are meant to excel in school and find your profession, do things that are largely independent and self-building, and it's in later life that people are expected to settle down, find a partner, perhaps have a family, and then settle into a community. But in my experiences in school, or even now in my young professional life, I don't see a ton of fibers of cooperation. I think there are systems at war with one another. If you look at social media, there are often narcissistic elements to how we portray ourselves and the attention we hope we receive. In an economic sense, one of my theories about why people behave in somewhat financially selfish ways 
is because in our country, we don't have the impression that if we fall through the cracks, our community members will help us. And there is a deep fear and sorrow there that other countries, admittedly more socialist in their economies, don't have. A good friend of mine from the Dominican Republic remarked that he wouldn't want to raise his kids here for the reasons that I just described, that he would want to exist around a sense of community. Pete, I would turn to you and ask, admittedly with hope in my throat, how are we going to get from this current circumstance, which I'm certainly perceiving subjectively, to one in which people not only participate in a democracy, but behave democratically towards one another? And do you think we're currently on that path? I think there are two pieces of democracy that are necessary. And the two pieces are what I call empowerment and solidarity. A deep democracy empowers its people and its communities, by which I mean it makes it easier and more believable to have you realize your dreams for yourself, for your family, for your community, for the economy, for any institution. That's empowerment. But you also need solidarity, which I define by you seeing other people's dreams as part of your own. So we need to make everyone stronger, but we also need to make everyone stronger together. That's empowerment and solidarity. And so we need to empower people more and we need to build solidarity. You build empowerment and you build a solidarity. You don't just like hope into the ether that these things will come. And you don't just throw up your hands and say, sorry, that's not what America's like. These are projects. Projects take time. Projects take effort. Projects take ideas. So how do we realize projects? We need to, and this is another idea I took from Unger, he calls it programmatic thought. He says programmatic thought is the process of setting a direction. It's a very simple idea that's common sense, but we forget it because we've gotten too into fatalism, which is believing that nothing can change, and blueprint thinking, which is like, I have my perfect plan that like I read about in the first book I ever read. And you know, you need to follow this plan. And alas, anyone who tries to follow the plan is disappointing because they didn't follow it exactly. In substituting for this, Unger proposes this idea of programmatic thought, which is set a direction or a vision and then identify first steps in the direction of that vision or direction. So it's very simple. That's all we can do. We just exist in our current time. We can have dreams of where we need to go. And then we need to make a step in the direction of those dreams. So if you believe in solidarity, solidarity is a real project. How does solidarity come? Well, solidarity is something that needs to happen in every institution. It needs to happen in our education system, and it needs to happen through new institutions. So let's break this down and get much more concrete. If you have an idea of changing American culture so that more people see each other's dreams as their own, see that we're all in this together, how do you transmit culture? Well, one way is in the like non-material space, in the space of ideas. So how are ideas transmitted? They're transmitted through media, like having movies that promote empathy and solidarity, TV shows that do that, art that does that, music that does that. It's also transmitted through a national curriculum and these state education curriculums, having education systems that promote the values of coordination, cooperation, empathy, and connectedness. You can do that at every level of education and you can do it in the way that you educate. So the structure of the school, it's not like a teacher sits there at the front of the classroom and says, care about each other. No, but you could have people have more projects together where they see that their advancement through school is part of their advancement of coming closer together. That's the softest part of doing it. But there's also material ways of doing it. For example, there are programs that bring people together and there are programs that come in surprising ways. So, for example, one of the most solidarity building programs in America is the Army. 
It's a thing that forces everyone from all across the country, from all races, regions, to come together and have a shared mission. And they're put in extreme circumstances and they come out a little bit closer together. So when Harry Truman integrated the armed forces in the 40s and early 50s, he prefigured the civil rights movement because all these folks fought in Korea alongside someone who was different from them so that when they saw that person who was different from them on the March on Washington in 1963, they were a little less averse to it. Tiny baby steps of making people see like they're in it together. So that's like another one, institutions that literally bring people together. The third is rigid policies that remake the structure of society so that more people are interacting with each other. So for example, we have incredibly class-segregated and race-segregated residential policies that lead to very similar people living close together. There are hard material policies that can change that. And suddenly, if people are living close together, if they're going through programs that bring them together, if the culture is promoting bringing them together, they're going to be more together. It's just one step at a time. I adore your point about seeing other people's dreams as important to your own. Because again, whether derived from our economic policies or other seeds within American culture, I see more seeds of rivalry and competition than the belief that other people can offer us support just by achieving their own dreams. And I'm of the opinion that unless yours is a selfish or malicious dream, anyone achieving their dream is likely to help the people around them. If your dream is to become an excellent chef, I think there's a good chance you will feed people who need good food. You may even teach people things about nutrition they didn't previously know. But if you think that person's aim is to take a job that you currently have or to boast about themselves in some way, then I think you have, and I need to hear this more often myself, a cynical view that might inhibit you from seeing how they could add to the world you live in. And in my consumption of creative content, I've struggled to get out of that competitive mindset but I'm really excited when I see other people's art, and often it's because they've succeeded at distributing it. Certainly a democracy is not just art or people's creations, but I think a lot of us have creative dreams, and I think in many cases, those dreams influence the communities we come from and often create new communities because people are similarly excited about a piece of media, for example, a film that millions love or an album that everyone's been listening to. What I take away from what you just said is that there's a problem of scarcity in democracy, that when there are scarce slots or resources, people suddenly get competitive over them. And I think one of the projects of democracy is to get rid of artificial scarcity. So let me give you a slightly bizarre example. We have a single baseball league that we know of, Major League Baseball. It's the 100, 200, 300 best baseball players in the country at the time. But there are all these people that played college baseball or minor league baseball or got into baseball when they were older, and they hit the wall of not making it into major league baseball, and then they become nothing because they didn't get that scarce resource. And so I think one of the democratic projects I'm interested in as a side fun hobby is regional and local sports. Because if we were as proud of the local sports team, you know, I'm from Falls Church, Virginia, and if Falls Church, Virginia had a baseball team that played the others in uh, Northern Virginia, and then maybe it did good one year and made it to the Virginia State Tournament, and maybe it did amazing one decade, 
and made it to the National Amateur Baseball League. And the newspapers covered that. And you started getting to know the people at the grocery store. And you're like, oh, you're the shortstop for Falls Church's baseball team. That's amazing. You can know a shortstop of a baseball team that you got to cheer on and be excited about and wear their logo and maybe even wear their jersey. But you can never meet Derek Jeter. And, you know, that guy who plays shortstop for the Falls Church baseball team isn't going to be a millionaire. He might not even be paid at all. And having layered tiers of engagement in everything from art to music to sports to government to the economy is part of the democratic project. We can't just have the teeming masses who watch the tiny morsel of people that get to be on the other side of the television. So I think one of the projects of deepening democracy is getting rid of artificial scarcity by bringing things closer and creating more layers where more people in more ways can engage and participate. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned death spirals or virtue spirals, two concepts that I find really interesting because they speak to a snowball effect in the negative or positive sense. And while I don't disagree, I will say, as someone who, like you, is not a big fan of Donald Trump, that in the Trump era, I've seen a lot of political activity emerge in response to the man in the Oval Office. And to the topic of deepening democracy, I would say that I find democracy to be, especially in the course of my lifetime, particularly in these past couple of years, a very dynamic system. So long as the power does rest with the people, People are articulate, people are vocal, people push back, and ultimately, as we can see in local, state, and national levels of government, people participate when they want something to change. Hope is a requisite element in deepening democracy, and I don't think it's that easy to kill hope. And in many ways, democracy itself, in its social fibers, keeps hope alive. I find it far easier to remain hopeful with and among other people than I would alone, because hope is something powerful to share with other people. And what I see that I don't like in our democracy is vehemence, arguments, and things that I think dehumanize and remove or restrict hope, or in certain cases, limit it to certain classes, certain individuals, even more explicit demographic groups, like those based in race. So to me, the course of this conversation speaks to the fact that to deepen democracy, you must preserve it. One of the best things you can do for its future is to keep its presence safe and healthy, to remind people how important voting is, and just as essential, as you've clearly articulated, why democracy is empowering on a human level, even when you don't feel touched by the political system on a day-to-day or hour-to-hour basis there is something compassionate about true democracy, and I appreciate you articulating those points. But before we close this episode, what would you like our audience to think about after listening to this conversation? I would invite the audience to think about their civic life in the metaphor of exercise and muscles. If you had never ran and someone said run a marathon, you'd have no hope. And the first time you started running, it might even seem less likely than before you even started running that you could complete the marathon. But over time, it'll become easier and easier and more natural and more natural that it gets to a point where you talk to some runners, not running becomes unnatural and not running becomes hard. And I think the more times you take your ideas and opinions and dreams and try to realize them in the world, the easier it will become the more opportunities you will see, and the more hope you will have. 
To your point about the difficulty of achieving Herculean tasks at the outset, when we haven't done much to previously flex those muscles, I find observation of others in Herculean pursuits to be especially empowering, and I'd love to know if listeners have democratic, in a lowercase d, role figures or icons that they look to to inspire democratic behavior or ideas in them. And as this topic was rooted in deepening democracy, I'd love to know how listeners think our democracy has been, is, or is becoming shallow. And do you think Pete and I offered alternatives or even different ways of thinking to deepen democracy? And Pete, for your time, passion, and eloquence, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kip, and thank you, listeners. But of course, as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where you'll receive perks like bonus episodes in exchange for your support. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.